Father in heaven, by your spirit, through the word, send out your light and your truth and let them lead us. Let them bring us to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then we will come to the cross of Christ and to the risen Son of God, our exceeding joy, and we will praise you, our triune God. Hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series through the book of Philippians, and we've come to chapter 3, verse 17. 3, verse 17. And so we want to read uh, from chapter 3, verse 17 to the end of the chapter. Philippians chapter 3, beginning our reading at verse 17, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, we've come to the end of this great chapter of Scripture, a great chapter, as one commentator has said, of practical theology. Um, Of course, we always want to say that all of the theology of the Scripture is practical, can be used for our lives, but this has been particularly practical for us in helping us to see how we can live the Christian life. Um, It's been helpful to show us, as we've said uh, a few times, that the secret to Christian living is Christian thinking. Uh, That having shown us what the mind ought to be, that we ought to have the mind of Christ and the good news that the Spirit supplies that mind to us, um, that having the mind of Christ, we can begin to live after the example of Christ. Uh, We can begin to put to death those old things to bring to life the new man to start walking after Christ, to strain forward, as we've heard, to the upward call of Jesus Christ. Um, And so we've been talking about that. Paul's been pointing those things out to us. We've been learning how that life is to be lived, how that life is to work out in the lives of Christians. And this, this end of the chapter is fitting because it helps to remind us where all of this thinking and all of this living is heading. Uh, That there is also an ending in mind for the people of God. Uh, That the mind of Christ is given to us and the life of Christ is given to us so that we can end somewhere. Um, And so where are we hoping to end? Where does Paul say that this all leads? Well, the mind of Christ leads to a Christ-like life that we might join Christ in his glory. Uh, That's the hope that's held out to the people of God. Um, That this life that we need to learn so much about living um, is not everything. Uh, That we we need to understand how to live while we are here, um, but to be reminded that this life here is not everything. 
Um, it's not even the thing ultimately towards which we aim um, or that we are pl- placing our ultimate hope in. Um, and Paul's reminding the, uh, us, of, us of those facts here at this end of this chapter, of that day of glory that awaits Christ's people, where his glory becomes ours. And the mind that we've been trying to help conform to Christ will be fully conformed to Christ. And the lives that we live will be eternally lived for the glory of God. Uh, That hope is what's being held out to us in this passage. Um, And so we can see here how Paul wants to end this meditation in chapter 3, thinking about these things. And so what do we see in these these verses that end this chapter? Uh, Paul's exhorting God's people to follow the right example. God's people need to follow the right example in the way we seek to live. Um, Paul also calls us to remember our true citizenship. God's people are called to remember our true citizenship. And finally, we are to hope in our coming glory. We're to hope in our coming glory. Uh, That's what we see in this passage, and that's what we want to think about together this morning. First of all, that we're called to follow the right example. Um, Paul begins in verse 17 by calling the church to follow the example that's been set forth. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul says that thing that makes us kind of uncomfortable. Imitate me. Um, Many of us would probably not want to give that advice to other people. Um, Imitate me, right? Um, And and Paul, of course, is not trying to draw attention to himself. Um, He says, I'm not the only one you should imitate. There are others who you can keep your eyes on that you might imitate as well and follow their example. Um, And it's important to understand what Paul means by this, right? Because he's already said in this chapter that he's not been made perfect. He's not already attained all of these things. He's not a perfect example to follow. So why would he say, imitate me? Why would he say, keep your eyes on these examples, Um, And and I think we learn what he's getting at if we understand really what that word example means. Um, Paul uses a word here that means an impression that's been left by a mold. Uh, Maybe boys and girls, if you've ever played with Play-Doh and you've been playing with it and then you you stick your thumb down in the Play-Doh and you pull your thumb out, what do you see there? Well, you see an impression of your thumb, don't you? And you see maybe even your fingerprints there in the Play-Doh. Um, And that's really what Paul is saying. That's what God has done in the lives of those who follow Christ. There's been an impression made. There's been an imprint put on them. And they still reflect that impression. That's how they are examples. Um, They've had the image of Christ pressed into them by the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's, that's why what they're really saying, Paul is not really saying, imitate me, that I'm the image you should put your attention on, but imitate me as I am one who's been imprinted by the Son of God. That Christ's life has been imprinted on me. And there are other people that Paul has directed their attention to and said, they too have had the imprint of Christ put on, put up, put on them. He's already directed our attention to other people who are commendable in this letter. He's talked about Timothy, who went and traveled a far distance and made a, made a tough journey just so he could find news and repeat that whole tough journey to bring it to Paul. 
Um, or Epaphroditus, who was so desirous to bring word of, from Paul back to the church, to bring the letter that Paul wrote, that he went to bring a gift and he came back with the letter and he suffered so much in the voyage that he nearly died. Um, Paul said, you know, he's not just putting attention on himself. He's saying the Lord has surrounded us with examples of people who show the impression of Christ left on them. Their lives are living examples of Christ. Um, And in that sense, there's no Christian that can really say there's nothing of Christ in me. There's nothing to me in me to imitate. Um, We might want to further qualify it as Paul does elsewhere where he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me in the good things. Um, And we know that you can only get so far telling people, do as I say, not as I do. Right? Parents have to reckon with that reality when they're trying to train up children. Uh, You can't just tell someone how to live, you have to show them how to live. And we all know that our words fall pretty hollow if you're telling people to do things that you don't do yourself. Um, And so Paul is not just saying, follow me in everything, but he's saying, I've preached to you one way and I've tried to live before you a certain way. Um, And that way should be imitated. And there are other men that are not perfect, that have their, their failings, but they imitate Christ. And as they imitate Christ, you should keep your eye on those examples and follow them. And indeed, that's what the Christian life is really to be about, right? To try to show the impression that Christ has left on us. To try to show that to the world. Um, And particularly that impression that a sacrificial Lord has left on his people. What, What is the example that keeps coming back to us as we think about Paul, as we think about Timothy, as we think about Epaphroditus? That they did these things for other people. Paul is in chains writing this letter, isn't he, for the sake of the gospel. He's been imprisoned for the sake of Christ and his church. Timothy went at great personal difficulty for the sake of Paul, that he might bring him joy in his chains. Epaphroditus went out of difficulty for the church, that they might bring a gift to Paul, that Paul might be sustained in his imprisonment. He brought a letter back to the church that they might be served by Paul's word of joy and encouragement. What is the common theme? How do they show that the impression of Christ has been made on them? It's self-sacrificial service. It's serving not for their own interests, but for the interests of others. And that, that, is, that typifies our Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world not for himself. He didn't need to come into this world. He didn't need to die. He didn't need to suffer on the cross. Who needed that? We did. The ones He loved. He came to serve those who the Father loved and who He loved. And that's exactly what Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and all true Christians are desiring to do. Serve their neighbor because they love their God and they love their neighbor. And we seek always to do the things that are pleasing to him. And Paul says, you know, brothers, and he includes sisters here, brothers and sisters, imitate me and keep your eye on the examples of those who imitate Christ, the example you have in us, 
And why is that so important? Because the world is filled with examples that you shouldn't follow. Right? This becomes all the more important when Paul goes on to say, for many in verse 18, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Um, There are those who are the imitators of Christ crucified, and there are many who are enemies of Christ crucified. Um, And their example is not to be followed. Um, And and that that needs to be said to Christians as well, right? Because we live most of our lives in this world surrounded by many people who are enemies of Christ. Now, the, 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 the importance of this is not to fill us with hatred for those who are enemies, right? How does Paul think and talk about those who are enemies of Christ? He talks about them with tears. Um, we, we can think of the psalmist saying, you know, my, my eyes cry rivers of tears that people don't keep your commandments. Um, even though the world might be our enemies and might be filled with enemies of the cross of Christ, we are not to hate the world. We are not to be angry with the world. Uh, We are to pity the world. Because we know what the end of the world is. Their end is destruction, Paul says. Um, Their end is destruction. Um, Paul maybe can say, this with tears because he lived for so long as an enemy of the cross of Christ. He knew what it was to work as an enemy of the cross of Christ. And maybe he still had friends that he knew, or former friends, probably more like, Pharisees who were still enemies of the cross of Christ. He knew what motivated enemies. He knew how they thought and how they lived. And he knew what the end was. And it made him weep. We need to have that same sorrow for the world. That although we recognize the world to be enemies of the cross of Christ, we don't compromise that, but it fills us with sorrow to know that they're enemies. Because we know the end that awaits the enemies of Christ. The enemies of his cross. Um. Let's never be those who are filled with hatred for the world, but let's always be those who look at the world and say we're more like them than we're not like them. And in fact, we'd be exactly what they are had not God saved us. There but for the glory of God go we too. Um, And Paul says, you know, the only difference between us and them is that we've had our minds changed so that our lives could change so that our end could be different. And sort of in reverse order, that's how he goes through the enemies of Christ. He talks about their end. What is their end? Their end is destruction. And what leads to that end? It's the lives they live. Right? What kind of lives do they live? Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Um, their God is their belly. The, the, the word that Paul uses there for belly is kind of a play on words that any of their appetites will fit here. It doesn't just mean food. It means any kind of physical appetites, anything that they're looking for in this world that they're satisfying. That's what they make their God. The things that satisfy them. 
Um, and that, that warning needs to be heard in our world, right? This is not just a first century problem that people make a god of their bellies. Uh, this is a 21st century problem as well. Um, people are told that, you know, your highest happiness will be found in satisfying whatever the desires you have. Um, you deserve to be happy, and if you have a desire that needs to be met, you should meet it. Um, now, the world will usually say, you know, you should do whatever makes you happy as long as it doesn't hurt someone else, right? That's sort of the, the mantra, the philosophy of the world. But the world always comes along and says, but you know, if it's a choice between you being happy and having to hurt someone else, go ahead and hurt someone else because you need to be happy. Um, You'll still hear people say, even though they'll acknowledge you shouldn't hurt people, they'll say, well, you know, but if you really need to be happy, you really need to do that for yourself. What is that an example of? It's an example of a life that's go- that makes our, our God our belly. My happiness becomes the ultimate reality. And people glory in things they should be ashamed of. Um had an opportunity not too long ago to hear Dr. Rosaria Butterfield talking about the life she used to live before God changed her as a as sort of a lesbian literature professor. Um, and one of, one of the parts of her story that's so compelling is as she's reading scripture and as the Lord is working on her heart, she begins to look around and see how much stuff she has that's pride. Pride is on my mug. Pride is on my t-shirt. Pride is on my poster. Um, there's pride everywhere, and I'm taking glory. I'm proud of the things that I should be ashamed of. Um, and, and the world does that. It glories in its shame. I was so saddened to be at a Padre game, not just because of the Padres, but I was, <laughs> that's, enough to make, that's enough to make you sad, but that's not the part that saddened me. What saddened me is I was at a Padre game, and there was a young girl, she must have been in her 20s, and she... Um, had a, a tank top on and she had a tattoo across the back of her neck, you know, maybe this big across her back. And the tattoo just said, damned. Um, this is not an attack on people with tattoos. But I thought, you know, where has your mind and heart gone that you would tattoo damned across your shoulders? Um, I thought, that's glorying in your shame. Um, and, and that's, that's what the mind apart from Christ does. It glories in the things that we should be ashamed of. Paul says that's, that's how they live. And why? Because of where their minds are. Their minds are set on earthly things. Um, if this is all that we are shooting for in this life, then why wouldn't you set your minds on these things? Right? If there's nothing else, that makes perfect sense to do what you want to do. Um, the problem is that's not the reality. There's a life beyond this life. Um, and some of the worst kinds of philosophies have come from people who've said, there's nothing beyond this. If you think there's anything beyond this life, you're kidding yourself. There's only this life. And so anyone who doesn't live this life to the full is just kidding themselves. And Paul wants to work through that, right? To say, just as Christian thinking will lead to Christian living, which will end in glory, 
so that if you set your minds on earthly things, you'll live a life where your God is your belly and you'll glory in your shame and your end will be destruction. Um, and, and if anyone's hearing these words and feeling picked on, we say these things with tears and so that you would turn and live. That's why God says these things to us. Because he doesn't want you to set your mind on earthly things. He doesn't want your God to be your belly. And he doesn't want you to glory in your shame. And he doesn't want you to die. That's what God always does. Is he comes and he sets life and death before us. And says, choose life. Why would you die? Life is offered freely and it will actually make you happy. The things that you think will make you happy will abandon you in the end. The joy of whatever you're doing will fade and the pain will remain. And it will remain forever. That's why Paul says we have to follow those, the example of those who have the imprint of Christ on them because there's many examples that we shouldn't follow. And if we follow them, it leads to death. So follow the examples of those who've been impressed by Jesus Christ. And remember your true citizenship. That's the next thing Paul wants to tell us. Um, to remember our true citizenship. Um, and I think there too we have a kind of a caution and a comfort. Remember your true citizenship. This would come with a particular poignancy to uh, citizens of Philippi. Um, citizens of Philippi, you might remember from the beginning of our series, I expect you to hang on all of the words of every sermon, but in case you don't remember, um, Philippi was a Roman colony. Um, and what that meant was that the people who lived in Philippi were Roman citizens. Um, Philippi was a kind of Rome away from Rome. It was considered Roman soil, and the people who lived there were Roman citizens, and you couldn't mess with a Roman citizen. They had rights that a lot of people in the empire didn't have. I was just reading a book about Caesars, and there were three Roman senators who were exiled from Rome because they tried without, or they'd um, imprisoned without trial Roman citizens. So, you know, even senators were not immune from justice if they mistreated Roman citizens. It meant something to be a citizen of Rome. Um, and, and people in Philippi could, could be really proud of that citizenship. When it wasn't necessarily a bad thing to be proud of that citizenship. But, but Paul was wanting to caution them and saying, never forget where your ultimate loyalty lies. That you may be a Roman citizen, but that's not where you should be placing your hope. Because you're actually a citizen of a better place. You're actually a citizen of heaven. Don't forget that. So set your mind on that fact, um, to think about that place of which you're a part. The, the focus here is really not just on the citizenship, but on the place that you're a citizen of, the commonwealth of heaven. And Paul's saying we, we, should, we should live in this world, we're not separated from the world, we have to be people from places. But there's a danger to be so proud of where you're from that you forget where your ultimate loyalties lie. You can do that as an American citizen. Be so proud of being an American citizen that you forget where your ultimate loyalties lie. 
Um, and part of being a citizen, right, is re- recognizing that your loyalties lie there. Um, Padres are getting too much mention today, um, but it, it's just happening. I was at a game where, this is a good story, um, so you know it has nothing to do with their playing. Um, but I was at a game where they were, before the game, they had 50 people come on the field, and they were from 40 different countries, and they all took their citizenship oath on the field and became American citizens during the game. Um, and it was wonderful to see the crowd, you know, cheering for them. It was wonderful to see their joy in becoming citizens um, from all these different places, switching their allegiances to the allegiance of the United States. And that's part of the citizenship oath that gets administered, right? You renounce all other citizenship. You renounce all other loyalties. And you're loyal to the place where you're a citizen of. Wherever they'd come from before, they were Americans now. And they, and they rejoiced in that. And when they were done, they embraced each other, and the stadium cheered for them. It was a great experience. Um, but it was a reminder that America is a kind of unique place where you can be from all different sorts of places and become a citizen. And wherever you're from, when you take that oath, you're a citizen of here now. And that's where your loyalties lie, and you've renounced loyalties everywhere else. And that's the the comfort that comes to us when Paul comes and reminds us, you know where your true citizenship is? It's in heaven. And you can't make yourself a citizen of that country. Only the king of that country can make you a citizen. And when he's made you a citizen, part of that is you've renounced every other loyalty. Um, every other entanglement, you're, you're now a member of his kingdom. You're now a citizen of his country. Um, and that's why it reminds us not to get too entangled with the things of this world and to remember where we're citizens of. It's a caution, but it's also a great comfort. It's a great comfort to think that we are citizens of heaven. Um, and, and notice how, how Paul puts that. Our citizenship is in heaven, right? It's not our citizenship may one day be in heaven. Or if you work really hard at it, you might be a citizen of heaven. What what is the joy and the glory of what he's saying? What's the comfort of God's people? You're a citizen of heaven now. That's where your citizenship is now. You rightly and properly belong to that place, that commonwealth, Um, And that's a remarkable thing to think that we belong to that place because it's an awesome place. It's an awesome place. One of our professors didn't like the fact that Californians use the word awesome so much, Um, usually after the word dude. Dude, that's awesome, right? He didn't like that because he said, you know what? Only God is awesome. Only the things of the Lord are truly awesome. And he sort of made an appeal to us as students to say, why don't you reserve that word for God and for the things of God? And so I'm doing that advisedly when I say heaven is an awesome place. It's awesome because as one theologian put it, whatever is in heaven has either always been free from sin or has now laid it aside. All things there are perfect. 
It's a completely unstained place of perfection. And it's amazing comfort that Paul comes and says, that's the place you belong. That's home. You're a citizen of that place. That place where everything has either always been perfect or has now laid aside all in sin and imperfection to become perfect. That's where you belong. You're a member of that place now. That's your proper home. Um, you know, we, people spend a lot of time speculating about heaven. What will, be, what will it be like? And when I get there, what will I do? Um, maybe you have a loved one, you think, the first thing I do that, I'll go find them. Right? We, we, we think like that about heaven. Um, but, but it seems that what Paul's drawing our attention to is the first thing that will strike us about heaven is that we're home. We'll find a place that we fit in a way that we've never fit in this world. Because we've always been in this world sojourners looking for another country. A heavenly one. A city that's a home. That's what impresses you about reading about the patriarchs in the Old Testament. They're always calling their lives sojourning. I always think of that when Jacob meets Pharaoh and Pharaoh wants to know how old he is. And his answer is, the years of my sojourning are this many. Um, I've always been a sojourner. There's a sense in which as long as we live in this life, we're always sojourners. And you can only live in a tent for so long. No matter how much you like camping, you can only live in a tent for so long. There's a time when you want to go home. What Paul is telling Christians is you have a home and one day you're going home and it will be the place that you belong. And so as you live in this world, remember you have a home. You have a place where you belong. And it's an awesome place. It's a holy place. And so we're to hope in that coming glory. That's the last thing Paul says. Remember your citizenship, but also hope in the glory to come. Because the place is awesome, but what makes the place awesome? It's the God whose country it is that makes heaven an awesome homeland. That we're not just waiting for heaven. We're waiting for the king of heaven. That's where Paul ends in this passage. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want glory, we want a home, but above all, we want a Savior. We want that day to come when the King of our home comes to bring us home. And that will either happen when we die and go to be in glory, to await His coming with Him, Or if we are part of that privileged generation of Christians that will be alive at his coming, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Either way, what we're waiting for is a Savior. And that's what is a joy for for citizens of heaven. That's That's the joy we live with in this life, is that we're not waiting for a judge. Right? We know that he's coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. 
But the good news about being a citizen of the kingdom is we know we're not ones that he's coming to judge. We know we've already been judged at his cross where he took the punishment for our sin on himself so that when he came again, he wouldn't be coming to deal with our sin. He's already come and done that. He'll be coming to save. You know, that, that was the thing that tormented Martin Luther is he thought of Jesus as a judge and he saw him coming with a sword in his hand. And he thought that that sword was meant for him. Um, And it wasn't until he realized that Christ had already suffered the sword of God's judgment on his behalf on the cross that he knew he was coming, not with a sword, but with an olive branch. He was coming to make peace. We don't await a judge, we await a savior. Um, And it's as if Paul has to give him all of his names and titles. From heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those names and titles are important. He's the Lord. He's the one who is the covenant Lord. He's the one who bought us with his blood and made us his possession. He is our Lord. He's our master. He's also Jesus, the man who came into this world to save us from our sins. And his name means Savior. God with us. And he's Christ. He's the one who's been anointed by the Father with the Holy Spirit to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. That's who we're waiting for. That's who's coming. That's who's on his way is our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming for His people to be a Savior. And what will He do at His coming? What does verse 21 tell us? Who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. We are meant to be citizens of heaven like Him. And if heaven is a place where all sin has been laid aside and all imperfection has been laid aside, then these lowly bodies need to be dealt with. Right? These bodies that are at war with us in sin and death, they need to be dealt with. And that's the glorious good news of His coming. He's coming as a Savior to fashion us for our homeland so that we're fit for heaven. And what does that involve? It involves the transformation of these lowly bodies to be like unto his glorious body. To take these bodies that live in this fallen world and to be changed into his resurrected body. And we don't have time to go through it now, but go home and read 1 Corinthians 15 and listen to how Paul compares those bodies. This body is corruptible, that body is incorruptible. This body is destructible, that body is indestructible. This body's earthly. That body is spiritual. We will be like Jesus. It's the best way that we can figure to put it. Without sin and incapable of sinning. 
incapable of sin in thought, in word, or in deed. It almost sounds too good to be true. Um, Because we know what we're like, and we know what Jesus is like, and we know the gulf that exists between the two. And so if we're tempted to say, how could he make my lowly body like his glorified body? Well, Paul tells us that too. Um, By the power that enables him to subject all things even to himself. Um, There's power in God beyond that which we can imagine. The power that enabled Jesus to subject everything to himself. Um, That includes nothing. I don't know why that's comforting. Um, But think about this. When God spoke to nothing and said, be light, what did the nothing do? It obeyed. It had to. It didn't have a choice. It just sprang into light. When God says, let there be, there is. There's power in that word. And there was nothing that was created in this world that was not created through Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying it's that same power that he will come into this world and say, let them be like me, and it will be. And it will not just be very good. It will be perfect. And it will be incorruptible and unchangeable. That's what we're living for in this life. That's what Jesus has changed our minds for. So that he could change our lives and that he could change the end to our story. So that it ends not in destruction but in eternal glory, in fellowship with Him who is our Lord, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Christian, hope in Him and strive to have His mind that we might strive to follow His example, knowing that because of what He's done, we will be like Him one day in glory. And let's pray that He comes quickly. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how we look forward to that day when we put off this earthly tent and find our heavenly home, how we desire to see this mortal life be swallowed up um, by what is truly life. We pray that Jesus would come quickly, but that while he waits, gathering his church, we might seek to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to follow the examples of those who've shown the imprint of Christ on them, May we live such that we could be examples to others who follow behind us. Lord, help us always to remember our citizenship, that we are even now citizens of that awesome place. And help us to eagerly await the Savior who is coming. Uh, Not just to wait for him, but to eagerly wait for him who is coming not to deal with our sins, but to save those who have been eagerly waiting for him. So Lord, help to fill us with this hope as we go out to live lives in the world where we're surrounded by enemies that bring us to tears. Help us to be instruments of your righteousness in this world. Help us to save our fellow men. Um, Help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.